on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now. WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Jeremy Goldstein, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear about vaccine rollout expanding. I would definitely say I'm relieved. Learn about the upcoming election in Tompkins. Creative solutions as we continue to deal with the logistics and listen to what it's like for live music to return. Like I said, we're dealing with conditions that a year ago we never would have imagined, but they are so much better than last semester when we couldn't do anything in the building. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community B. On Friday, March 12th, the Tompkins County Health Department received an additional 1,170 doses of the coronavirus vaccine. These vaccines arrived for the use of people with comorbidities, the presence of two or more diseases or medical conditions in a patient. The TCHD will use the COVID-19 vaccine registry to communicate appointment links directly with a random selection of individuals from the qualifying registry. A man was charged with attempted murder following the shootout and the car accident that occurred in Lansing. The 26-year-old Lansing resident is charged with three counts of second-degree attempted murder and one count of second-degree aggravated criminal possession of a weapon and now remains in Tompkins Jail. One of those involved in the car accident was declared dead on the scene and the others are treated for their injuries. The sheriff shared his thank you remarks to New York State Police, Lansing Fire Department, Banks Ambulance and Dryden Ambulance in a press release. The Ithaca Police Department has reported an increase in crime in the year of 2020. The city saw an increase of 266% in reported robberies in 2020 compared to 2019. 33 robberies were reported in the area last year and there were nine the previous year. Numbers for other offenses increased as well, including reported rapes, assaults, burglary, larceny, counterfeiting, and kidnapping. However, there was a decrease in numbers for some categories, such as DUI reports, possession of controlled substances, and sex offenses. Cornell University receives a $30 million donation for a new building. Given by a former alum and his spouse, the gift will be used to cover the construction of a new academic building, the university announced in a press release. The building is intended to foster innovative and collaborative research in priority areas of sustainability, public health, cancer biology, immunology, and computational biology, added the press release. The Ithaca Police Department is investigating an incident of suspicious death. The IPD confirmed there was police activity that encompassed several locations in the city of Ithaca in relation to this investigation. They also confirmed that a body was found on the afternoon of March 12th, but has not confirmed any more information. 
The city of Ithaca and Tompkins County are both eligible for COVID relief funds that add up to $36 million signed by President Biden on Thursday. Ithaca Mayor Myrick said that the amount was more than they expected, but was an appropriate amount. The mayor added that he anticipates the money going towards infrastructure improvements. For Bridget Bright, I'm Celine Tudor, WICB News. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Jeremy Goldstein. With Anna Kellis taking her seat in the New York State Assembly, that leaves a spot open in the Tompkins County Legislature. Correspondent George Christopher has more on the upcoming March 23rd special election. On Saturday, November 7th, most major networks projected Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 presidential election. And for many Americans, this was the end of the election season. After spending days on the edge of their seats as results trickled in from across the country, many were grateful for the closure and to move on from the stress of political campaigning. But elections don't happen just every four years or two years or even every single year. Elections, whether they be municipal, state, or federal, are happening all the time, including here in Ithaca. One race, which you may not be aware of, is the special election for the Tompkins County Legislature's 2nd District, scheduled for March 23rd. The election was scheduled after previous legislator Anna Kells resigned her seat after being elected to the New York State Assembly for the 125th District. Two candidates will be on the ballot, Leslie Schill, Director of Campus Planning at Cornell University, and Dr. Veronica Pilar, a local teacher at Cascadia School and at Tompkins Cortland Community College. Dr. Pilar also works as an activist, leading the local chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice. We spoke to both candidates and asked them why they sought this seat and what they hope to gain for the community. Leslie Schill has made health a core tenet of her campaign, running on the Healthy Community Party line. So what I'm hoping to do is really to shore up the focus, the interest, the resources, and to bring potentially creative solutions as we continue to deal with the logistics of rolling out COVID vaccinations. But she made clear her concern for community health doesn't stop at COVID-19. Right now we're having to set aside some other vaccinations locally. So how do we bring that back up? How do we make sure that uh, we take advantage of the basically the high visibility that public health has had, and I would say the excellent work of our health department to take care of other critical issues in the community related to public health, mental health, um, personal well-being, children's health, and maternal health. These are all core to my campaign. When asked about what she hopes to achieve outside of the field of health, she'll invoke her experience at Cornell and other institutions, including the Tompkins County government. As a planner, I always take a, a broad view. And I recognize the interrelationships and kind of the the integrated nature of the systems of a community that make it a good place to live, a nice place for families. And so I'm focused on, uh, across the board, a pretty broad spectrum from family issues around child care, youth services, to housing, increasing the stock of local quality housing and affordable housing, to reinvesting in our local economy by building a pipeline of trades and energy and health sector good-paying jobs so that people can stay in this local place that they grow to love and then sometimes find themselves priced out of. Shill's opponent, Dr. Veronica Pilar, has taken a broader approach to her policy prescriptions for the county. The overall core things are understanding and saying publicly and working in alignment with the knowledge that every person has a lot more human rights than 
we often offer in um, from American government and from capitalism. So the right to health care, the right to clean air and water, the right to a living wage, the right to stable and secure housing. Dr. Pillar has also gotten the endorsement of the Working Families Party and says her motives and goals align with that of the WFP. The Working Families Party, it's really about prioritizing people, like individual people and families over corporations and big businesses and the wealthy with an excess of resources. Though both candidates spoke positively about the county legislature and its members, both also made clear that there is still room for improvement. One dynamic that I see often is that big institutions, whether businesses or places like Cornell and developers, are really, really good at advocating for their interests with the legislature. And the legislature is pretty good at listening to them. And I think has not has made some moves in the direction of trying to hear from, say, labor unions and grassroots groups and reach out to working class people, but could really do a lot more in their direction. Dr. Pla also weighed in on the largest issue facing Tompkins and the entire planet, the COVID-19 pandemic. There's already this pre-existing inequity in, in terms of housing, food access, employment that's just been both highlighted and exacerbated by the pandemic. So I think um, in terms of getting through the pandemic, there's some balance between short-term relief and longer-term changes. While Dr. Pilaf focused on her community ties, Ms. Schild talked about her experience both outside of and inside the Tompkins County community. So in D.C., I headed up um, planning and design for D.C. Parks and Recreation. And there we were planning and revitalizing local parks, as well as building uh, community recreation centers, which were really the hubs of the community all across Washington, D.C. In the county planning department here, I worked on many sustainability initiatives. So I developed and co-authored the energy and greenhouse gas emissions element to the county comprehensive plan. I led the eight county cleaner, greener, southern tier plan for this entire region, which was part of the REDC um, base requirement uh, coming out of the governor's office. The special election is scheduled for Tuesday, March 23rd, but applications for absentee ballots must be postmarked by March 16th, and mail-in ballots must be postmarked on or prior to March 23rd. For more information, visit the Tompkins County Board of Elections website at www.tompkinscountyny.gov. Forward slash BOE. For WICB News, I'm George Christopher. Vaccines are the big story at the moment around the country. With the recent stimulus package giving more funding to their distribution, and with many locally, around the country, and around the world getting one of the now many approved vaccines, each shot delivered means relief for each person that gets it. Correspondent Christian Matry looked at the current eligibility expansion. Vaccine supplies from the federal government were limited, so the Tompkins County Health Department had to frame their vaccine distribution program for COVID-19 around prioritizing certain residents' vaccinations over others. And when a resident can get vaccinated depends on multiple factors. These could be underlying health conditions, age, or if their job puts them in contact with people. 
So, in order to deal with limited vaccine supply and differing levels of urgency for residents' vaccinations, the health department adopted a phased approach to distribute the vaccine. Dr. Martin Stallone, the CEO of Cayuga Medical Center, spoke about this during a town hall in January. Sure, we are uh, in what is considered phase 1A. That is the uh, forward-facing high-risk healthcare workers and other uh, individuals who by their role uh, come into contact with COVID positive patients. The panel focused on informing residents on how the vaccine was going to be distributed locally. Phase 1A included certain types of healthcare workers and first responders who were in close contact to COVID-19 patients or those who had a high risk of getting the virus. But we're currently in phase 1B of the program where non-healthcare worker residents can now receive the vaccine. The phase's eligibility has varied as supply of the vaccine doses is limited and the demand only grows as different variants of the coronavirus infect the UK, and now recently, the US. According to the Ithaca Voice, those currently eligible for the vaccine include public city and government employees, essential workers like grocery store employees and food service workers, residents 60 years and older, nonprofit workers who are in close contact to people, and essential in public building workers and teachers. Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa says the county needs to reach what's called herd immunity in order for the area to be safe from contracting the coronavirus. Herd immunity is when a sizable amount of a certain population is immune to a virus. According to Krupa, in order for this to happen, 75% of the county needs to be vaccinated. The most recent update regarding COVID-19 that the local area has received was on March 12th. According to the county's website, 1,170 doses of the coronavirus vaccine have been given to the Tompkins County Health Department. The health department will distribute 700 doses to workers eligible under Phase B. The remaining 470 doses will be available for residents who qualify under a new list of pre-existing health conditions. The list is extensive, but it includes some of the following. Cancer, chronic kidney disease, sickle cell disease, and type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Raylene Ford, an Ithaca College student working at the school's fitness center, recently qualified herself since she is exposed to many people on the job. And as is the case for many, getting that shot now means a weight is lifted from her shoulders. I would definitely say I'm relieved. Um, it will be very nice to know that I am immune to the virus. Now that she's vaccinated, she's excited to be able to do more things safely. Well, I know my family, the rest of my family is getting vaccinated soon, so I'll be able to see them, which is really nice. And we won't have to worry about, you know, quarantining or anything, and I don't have to worry about getting my parents sick. For some, getting this vaccine means that maybe they can resume normal activities, like seeing family on a regular basis. Normalcy in day-to-day -day life seems so far away, as it was the end of December of last year that the coronavirus was declared a pandemic by the CDC. All music was found on orangefreesounds.com. For WICB, I'm Christian Maitre. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Jeremy Goldstein. Music is obviously important for music students, but the pandemic has made it so that these undergrads who want to make their career centered around creating and performing music had to stop performing live for a whole year. Now, though, Ithaca College's stages are back in use. Correspondent Michael Memis spoke to IC's music students to hear more about getting back. Mm -hmm. 
audiences return to performances at the Whalen School of Music at the beginning of this month for the first time since March of last year, when the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the school and changed everything. While still not back to normal, having to limit capacity and restrict to those in the IC community, students were finally able to come back and play. I spoke to Eric Kibblesbeck, the Concerts and Facilities Manager at the School of Music, who has been in charge of this process. The seats that can be used are marked. We're keeping track of where the, everyone in the audience sits. People have to actually register for a seat as they come into the hall. All performers are using the agreed-upon PPE masks, bell covers, clarinet bags, whatever has been decided for that particular area. We blocked off the front, I think it's five rows, so that there's some, a little bit of additional space. Concerts need to go 30 minutes, take a, take a break, carry on after an intermission. So things are generally shorter than they have been. Certainly my sense is people are glad to be doing it even under these conditions. One of those who are glad is trumpet player Nate Oskowski, who had his first performance in front of an audience in nearly a year last Saturday for Jazz Ensemble. It felt like more than just a usual performance for him. I'd say prior to this year, a lot of the time, sometimes we put on a concert just to just because that's what is expected of us each semester. You know, at the end of each block, we put on the concert and that's it. But I feel like after going so long without it, I feel like that concert was more than just making music. It was like, it was about sharing music with other people. Instead of feeling more nervous with an audience, Oskowski felt more fueled by having people in the crowd. A similar sentiment was shared by Christian Labrie, a percussionist who performed last Saturday at a percussion ensemble. I don't know why, but I actually was way less nervous to perform in front of people than I had been previously. And to be fair, you know, the percussion ensemble concert didn't have a you know a huge turnout, a huge audience. It was only a couple people. I just felt so much energy from being on stage with so many of my friends just to perform live again. I wasn't as nervous as I usually was. Oskowski and Labrie have both attended performances in Ford Hall as well and have enjoyed the experience. Although circumstances are different, the stage crew does a good job of adjusting, said Oskowski. If I'm being honest, there was definitely congestion leaving the concert, but I think, think that's just because for some people it's their first concert, so they're not used to the fact that they can't just exit wherever they want. The stage crew running the concert, they're very good at politely reminding people watching the concert, like, oh, this is an entrance only, so you can't exit this way, and they kindly usher them to the proper exits. Kibblesbeck says he is fortunate to have amazing crews, but has hung around some performances this semester to see how everything is going. Currently, Ford Hall is open with a maximum of 70 guests from the Ithaca College community, and Hockett Family Recital Hall has a maximum of 30 guests from the Ithaca College community. The general public cannot come to these events, but can still watch via live stream. Kibblesbeck doesn't believe that the number of people allowed in Ford or Hockett will expand, or that it will open to the general public this spring. What I've heard from Associate Dean Waltz and her interaction with the health and safety folks is that we shouldn't anticipate any changes at this time. I don't think we're going to be, I just don't think the campus as a whole is going to be allowing folks from the general public to come in this semester, and even including, you know, family or anything like that. That's, that's my understanding of where that is. But of course, if I get different directions, we'll change. But I would, I mean, speaking for myself, I'd be surprised if we're able to change much this semester. Oskowski, for one, is glad these current guidelines are in place. If I'm being honest, I, I was worried that these concerts were going to go max capacity. If I'm being honest, like we've been craving live music for so long, I thought it was going to be packed. But then when you actually get up on stage and like look out of the audience, it doesn't look that big because everyone's properly spaced out. So big shout out to our facilities manager, Eric Kibblesbeck, for 
really taking those guidelines seriously. Kippelsbeck is optimistic for the fall semester and beyond, but acknowledges that the COVID-19 situation is still unpredictable. Like I said, we're dealing with conditions that a year ago we never would have imagined, but they are so much better than last semester when we couldn't do anything in the building. That just all hope that everything continues to go well and we'll have fewer restrictions in the future. Whatever it looks like in the fall, the attitude towards performing in front of audiences and attending concerts has shifted in a more positive direction. Labrie says he is more appreciative of these opportunities after nearly a year of not being able to do them. Performing in person is is so exciting, and I really took it for granted before COVID. I would dread concerts sometimes. I'd just be like, ugh, you know, I gotta go do this thing tonight, and it's taking up so much of my time that I could be spending doing schoolwork or watching Netflix or something. Now that's absolutely not the case. I really try to take every rehearsal, every performance for what it is now, and I definitely appreciate it a lot more. I myself have fond memories of concerts and recitals I have gone to in Whalen and look forward to seeing these world-class performances and performers in person sometime in the near future. It will be different from previous times, but in a good way. I will finally be able to see music with other people and won't be behind a computer or phone screen. For WICB News, I'm Michael Memes. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Jeremy Goldstein. With International Women's Day last week and March being Women's History Month, we decided to look back at the victory of women's suffrage in the region. Correspondent Hamadri Saif explored the history. You can't be cynical about it. You can't say my vote doesn't matter. It matters. And it's, you know, I think that that's, that's one of our, one of the lessons that we found is that this was a very, this was a long struggle. And it was not a given. I mean, it was not even even as late as, as 1920, it was not a given. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That's the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution, an amendment that took many a lifetime of struggle to bring to reality. A fair amount is known about the National Movement for Women's Suffrage, and it started to take foot in the decades before the Civil War. This was followed by a long history of advocacy, a gradual strengthening of women's footing in social and political issues through their participation in movements like the Temperance Leagues, anti-slavery organizations, and even their later role in the First World War, all of which, alongside many, many movements spanning from the grassroots to the national level, also framed within a broader international context, led to women initially winning the right to vote in certain states. And then finally, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified on the 18th of August, 1920, roughly 100 years before now. Powerful radical figures like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, founders of the National Women's Suffrage Association in New York, ensured that the state got its fair share of recognition within the national movement. New York was one of the earlier states to give women the right to vote, granting that right in 1917. It was home to the landmark Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention in the United States, held from the 19th to the 20th of July, 1848, in which a staggering, at least for the time, 300 locals showed up. Something lesser known about that convention is that it unanimously passed all of the 100 resolutions discussed except for the ninth one, 
which demanded women's suffrage and barely scraped by. So while it was undeniably a pretty neat convention that laid a lot of groundwork for the future of women's rights, it wasn't an all-encompassing representation of the women's suffrage movement in upstate New York. Our local history is not confined to our knowledge of what was happening at large in the state. Sometimes we forget to remember the many, some of them forgotten, faces of the fight for women's suffrage in the places that missed the big papers. 2017, of course, was the 100th anniversary of the New York State Suffrage Amendment. And so I was asked to do a small exhibit in the library and Carol and I were asked to give a talk about it. And so we did that in November to commemorate the, uh, the passage of the New York State Amendment. And doing some of the research for that talk, we, we thought this is a bigger story than we can do in a 30 minute talk, obviously, in an hour talk, even in a many. We should really, we should really write a book. That's Elaine D. Engst, retired Cornell University archivist who co-authored Achieving Beulah Land, The Long Struggle for Suffrage in Tompkins County with Carol Kamen, Tompkins County historian. The book came out in 2018 and covers various accounts, written and photographic, of the local movement for women's suffrage. Writing this particular book was important to Elaine. There are a lot of books about women's suffrage. I mean, there are tons of books and they all do different perspectives, but most of them are at least on the state level, if not the national level. So they're really books that take the big picture, that look at the big picture. And we wanted to see the microcosm. What was happening in this small, initially rural community in upstate New York. I mean, and Ithaca is, it's an interesting place. And it's, again, it was small, it was rural, it was kind of sleepy, <laughs> frankly, at, at, at this point. And how could we see that in the context of what was going on elsewhere? But how did it play out here? And then you have this major change, you have a new university and a really radical educational experiment coming into this small place. And so you had a lot of interesting things going on. Another unique aspect of writing this book was that for the first time, Elaine faced the problem of not having enough sources to get information from, instead of the usual panic of there being too much information to capture. Even in the sources she did find, there were certain peculiarities. There are a couple of people that we never found pictures and they weren't just, they weren't obscure people. So again, is this, what did this tell us? The absence of something, what does it tell you? Did they not want their pictures taken? Was it simply that there are pictures but they weren't, nobody kept them? I mean, that they were, they were family pictures but those family albums somehow disappeared um why so again this was a question we couldn't answer i found it hard to believe that all these women were somehow just camera shy elaine says that some of it is to be blamed on the fact that many of the organizations involved were student groups and apparently student groups in general are just not all that great at keeping records but the issue goes beyond just the carelessness of college students Interesting, the thing that we found no documentation on locally was the anti-suffrage movement. 
And this is something, of course, you have to remember is not everybody supported this. A whole lot of people didn't, including a lot of women. <laughs> and we can we know we know that there was anti-suffrage activity in town because you can read about it, but we have no names, zero, and we have no groups. So does that mean they weren't there? <laughs> Absence is not proof of anything. <laughs> But, but it's interesting that they're not. The, the other thing that we, we notice is that there is a certain class element to the suffrage movement locally, where the kind of uh, the elite, the, the, as you call them, the great white families are not really the ones involved. That you have, what you have is people who come to Ithaca, who are sort of new to the community. You have people who are associated with the university. You have people who are uh, who've come from progressive families elsewhere and are bringing that to to the, the local scene. So you you actually have a sort of a different group of people and not the people who are going to be the ones who have the huge family collection. But those aren't the people who are who are getting excited. And again, it's not that those that. Those women are involved in lots of, you know, philanthropic charitable activities. And they don't seem to be specifically opposed to suffrage that we can tell, but they're certainly not active. So then who were some of the people who were involved in the movement? While unfortunately we don't have records for everyone, Karen Pastorello, who wrote the book Women Will Vote, Winning Suffrage in New York State with Susan Goodyear, which came out in 2017, has some of these names. Some of them, like Helen Booster Owens, uh, was the math professor, so some taught. One woman who was early active in the movement was a woman named Louisa Lord Riley, and her son was actually an engineering student at Cornell. And she had started a suffrage club in Orange, New Jersey, and moved to Ithaca with her husband so that they could maintain a household for her son to stay in while he went to Cornell. This is in the 1890s, of course. So. Uh, that was a very common practice then. But in general, um, Ithaca Forms uh, was called a political study club, which is an off-branch off of uh, an existing women's club in Ithaca. And the Women's Political Study Club uh, had a visit from both Susan B. Anthony and a woman named Harriet Main Mills to help them as they were starting to get organized. And that political study club eventually becomes the political equality club in Ithaca. And then they expand their reach into Tompkins County. And all those local and even more regional organizations are organized under uh, the National American Woman Suffrage Association and the New York State Woman Suffrage Association. So it's a, it's a grassroots network that kind of builds up and out from there. Talking about grassroots participation, according to Elaine, there's actually no evidence of any knowledge of the Seneca Falls Convention within the Ithaca community at the time. Instead, there was a different date that, in reality, had a lot more meaning for the people of and around Tompkins County. I think the, the big date is, of course, 1894. 1894, there's a state constitutional convention, and New York State was supposed to have those about every 20 years, I think. Um, and so this was an opportunity for the state suffrage leaders to mount a petition drive. 
that they were going to petition the Constitutional Convention to remove the word male from the New York State Constitution. So that's, and they really, they actually got 600,000 signatures on their petition. So this was a very, this was a statewide initiative, very big deal, uh, done on a county basis. Uh, the local one, I think there were 3,000 signatures in Ithaca, um, or in Tompkins County, actually. But the petitions were submitted to the Constitutional Convention and they voted it down. And essentially, the powers that be were not interested and controlled the convention. So then what happens locally is that the New York State Women's Suffrage Association holds its annual meeting in Ithaca in November of 1894. And that's, uh, that's a big deal for Ithaca because mostly they would hold it in big cities in Rochester and Syracuse and you know, New York. So, so to hold it in, in Ithaca was a big impetus for local people to get involved. And there wasn't a formal organization there was a kind of an informal organization to do the petition drive. And interestingly, what they, one of the petition, the woman who was kind of in charge of the petition drive said they would have gotten more signatures, but they were doing this in February and the roads were bad. And can you imagine in 1894, going around these local roads? I mean, they didn't have cars. <laughs> they, they were doing this with, with horses and, and buggies and, and it must've been horrible. Transportation was a huge challenge to be overcome at that time. Karen Pastorello adds. So just reaching out and connecting, you know, if you think of the modes of communication in the late 18th, early 19th century, um, it's amazing to me that these women, even the more well-known leaders like Stanton and Anthony were able to travel as much as they did. And of course, um, some of it is because the train networks and railways and um, subways were a little bit better in some places than even they are now. Um, so overcoming those kind of logistical challenges of travel, also reaching out to the more rural uh, remote families, you know, the women and the men, um, and really traveling in a house to house way and, and connecting with people that lived in very isolated places was an initial challenge. Arguments against women's suffrage and just a general lack of understanding of it were the other big problems. Well, at first, people did not realize what even the term suffrage meant. And in simple terms, it means the right to vote. Um, they heard the word, and yet to some of them, of course, is off-putting. So just educating the public and overcoming um, some of the um, lack of knowledge about what suffrage was and what it would really mean. And as, as you mentioned, uh, the anti-suffragists had a lot of arguments against suffrage. Um, one of the big ones is women would become less feminine. Um, they would probably neglect their household responsibilities. Um, those were, as I said, the more common arguments. We also heard kind of the extremes where women who became suffragists were um, apt to bear defective children. We can't talk about this topic without also talking about the effects of racism and xenophobia and how that made this movement look very different for women of color, especially those of African-American descent, as well as immigrant women. 
For them, it took astoundingly longer to achieve the same goal of the seemingly simple idea of being able to choose their leaders. Uh, something else that I think is actually bigger and maybe more um, poignant is the issue of racism uh, that's raised. And we actually have a chapter in our book on African-American women in the suffrage movement. And what's most memorable about um, that chapter and the actual formulating of that chapter is that information was almost impossible to find on African-American women in the suffrage movement. Uh, we know that with, um, without hesitation, most African-American women in the South were unable to vote until 1965 with uh, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and, and even now, um, as you can see with our recent elections controversies, there are issues uh, with race and voting, or, and not just for women, but for men as well. Uh, another interesting fact, I think, is that in New Mexico, Native American women were not allowed to vote at all until 1962. Um, so what I'm saying, I guess, is that in this country, uh, women were never given anything. They had to fight relentlessly. Um, and in the case of especially white women, uh, 72 years, this formal suffrage movement took. And of course, for minority women, it took much, much longer. Uh, in some cases, at least 100 years longer to win full suffrage. The 19th Amendment was a critical step towards the kind of equality that we still don't have in full. Elaine said that the 19th Amendment was still a beginning, something to start the fight for true equality with, more than a final end goal. There's an earlier amendment, the, the 14th and the 15th Amendment, which actually says that you could not limit voting on the basis of race or color. So that's, that's the early one, but that one specifically doesn't say sex. So we needed the 19th Amendment. So, what it doesn't do though is one, it says citizen, which meant Native Americans couldn't vote. Native Americans in 1920 were not considered US citizens. So that's, that's a big one. Uh, we also know that in particularly Southern states, the states actually did lots of discriminatory practices to prevent blacks from voting and you know intimidation all kinds of, of different things and still do uh, we also know that in fact uh, Chinese Americans were not citizens they could only become citizens after 1943 and other Asian Americans so if your family had come here 1952 very very late that, that's within my historical lifetime, <laughs> you know, so, so really those people could not, those people, whether they were men or women, could not vote because they weren't citizens. So the only thing that that amendment also did was guaranteed the right to vote, not all the other rights of citizenship. So women at that point who married men who were not citizens lost their citizenship not the reverse men who married women who were not citizens didn't so that was pretty bad and women were not actually allowed to serve on juries so again this was and this was later done by on a state-by-state -state basis and then eventually federal juries 
it was not until 1975 that the Supreme Court mandated that juries must be selected from a group that's a fair cross-section of the community. So you have that. Uh, lots of other things. I mean, employment law is, is a big one. So that, you know, how are women treated as far as, as employment goes? Um, Title IX, universities and colleges. So people, we think of it as, as athletics, but it actually is way broader than that. Um, access to healthcare, access to all kinds of, of different issues that, that you can see, those have nothing to do with the 19th Amendment. The only thing the 19th Amendment does is it allows people to vote. The only thing the 19th Amendment does is in fact allow people to vote. But that singular individual choice took a near century of struggle and for some, much longer than that to achieve. Why are we not voting in vast numbers? And we should be. And, you know, it's, it's whether it's absentee ballot now or, you know, I, voting, I think, locally here is very safe. People, people need to vote. And that's, it's really, it's really important. You can't be cynical about it. You can't say my vote doesn't matter, it matters. Elaine tells me the story of Edith Ellis, the first woman in Tompkins County to run for office as early as in 1918, right after women in New York were given the right to vote. And I don't like the word given. It sounds like something that shouldn't have already belonged to them. So she ran right after women took the right to vote and even though she lost that election, in this case, it really was the attempt that counted because it emphasized the importance of women being active in politics and set an exceptional precedent for future women in the field. The same sentiment was reflected by Karen as she reminded me of the words the recently deceased Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said in reference to female justices in the Supreme Court. Quote, when I'm sometimes asked when there will be enough, and I say, when there are nine, people are shocked. But there had been nine men, and nobody's ever raised a question about that. For WICB News, I'm Himadri Seed. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Minard, WICB Station Manager, Sam Ives, Programming Director, Lou Barron, and new Social Media Coordinator, Gabriel Topping. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director, Jay Bradley, with assistance from News Managing Director, Celine Tudor. And this week's correspondents, Christian Maitre, George Christopher, Hamadri Saith, and Michael Memis. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICV.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Jeremy Goldstein, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.